Welcome to Doctor Who's 50 and 50, episode 33. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler, and today we're looking at the first Doctor Who serial. So this is the one that originally aired from November 23rd to December 14th, 1963. And instead of just talking about the story, we're going to go into a little bit about the backstory and the creation of Doctor Who. A lot of shows are the vision of a certain creator or, you know, the vision of network producers who decide there's a particular type of genre that's popular and they want that hole filled on their schedule. Doctor Who is closer to the latter. So the BBC were looking to create a series that was designed by committee to be guaranteed to be popular. The first step in this design is looking at what had already been successful. Now, if you look at the early years of television, some of the most successful shows were anthology series, especially ones that could jump around and tell different stories from different eras. So things like The Twilight Zone, Playhouse 90, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, a lot of these were the most popular series of the time. And the BBC was trying to reproduce that. The downside to having those series... There's a couple of downsides to them. The big one is casting. When you have unrelated story after unrelated story after unrelated story, you have to recast and find new actors for every single episode, which is time-consuming, it is expensive, it's not an easy thing to do. So they wanted to have the anthology feel, but with a regular cast. The other downside to having the episodic television is that there's no particular incentive to make sure that viewers don't miss an episode and to make sure that they're tuning in every time. The real regular viewing of entertainment that had been coming in the past few decades had been in serial form, either in the movie serials or in the radio serials. So in the movie serials, you'd have what is basically a four-hour movie chopped up into 10 to 15-minute segments and shown a segment at a time week after week after week in the same theater to get people coming back to the same theater. Radio plays were often 15 to 30-minute chunks, and they were done on a daily basis. So by then, we'd already had, you know, the yours truly Jolly Dollar working five days a week. We'd had Perry Mason working five days a week. We'd had Superman working anywhere from two to five days a week, depending on the era. And a lot of these were heavily serialized, meaning with the story broken up into parts, the audience is more inclined to try and tune in to every broadcast to make sure that they're not missing anything. So they wanted to bring that in too. Now, science fiction and fantasy wasn't all that well respected. There was some degree of popularity, but it wasn't necessarily respected by the public. You have things like Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, which are sort of exceptions because they do things so well. But by and large, you know, your Adventures of Superman and your other movie serials that were done on the cheap were not as well respected by the audience. They were just more popcorn entertainment, certainly weren't respected by critics. So when you're watching the first part of Doctor Who, this first story is a four-part story, and it did continue the serial structure through most of the series. So when you talk about specific stories, we will name the specific dates, the number of parts. Beyond that, it was also, as I said, designed by committee and an anthology. So in this first episode, you're about halfway through before you even know for sure that you're watching a science fiction series, if you just tune it in. Early on, the focus is actually on Susan Foreman and her teachers. We don't even meet the Doctor until we're about halfway through. He feels more like a guest star in this, and the human teachers that are teaching Susan Foreman feel more like the stars in this episode. It hasn't quite become the ensemble cast yet. It will by the time you're done episode four, but in episode one, the focus in the first ten minutes is easily on Susan Foreman's school teachers and how concerned they are about her with the oddities that she's coming out with in class. So these are two teachers in a perfectly normal British school in 1963 with a very unusual student who is absolutely brilliant and seems to be holding back 
a lot of the time, and yet has weird gaps in her knowledge, like not knowing the standard currencies in Britain at the time, and things like that. Because they're concerned about her, they decide to go check out her home. Her homework had been slipping lately, so Barbara, the history teacher, had already tried to go speak to her grandfather, because she knew that she lives with her grandfather, only the address on file turns out to be a scrapyard on Totter's Lane. Now, in this episode... They do go to the scrapyard together. They find the TARDIS, shaped like a police box. They find the doctor. They barge their way into the police box because they're concerned that the doctor has Susan locked up inside this tiny little box. And they find it's not particularly tiny. And the doctor figures, well, no, the gig is up. If people find out he's there and they're there, it'll become an oddity. That's it. And that he decides that they're going to go. So he basically kidnaps these teachers rather than let them go out in public and reveal to the world what they've seen. This not only introduces the concept of the TARDIS, we find out Susan Foreman is taking credit for naming it, which in a time-traveling society, we find out later that the TARDIS is a rather old model, but maybe Susan did name it in one of their earlier trips when she goes back in time. That's something, I don't know, I don't remember it being explored. We also have reason to believe, by the end of the series, not by here, that there's something else going on. The Doctor does mention that he and his granddaughter are exiles from their civilization. They don't name their home planet, they don't name their home species, just that they're exiles. He doesn't think that these humans can do it. He does not enjoy coming to the 20th century, as he puts it, and promises to open the door, let these teachers leave, instead dumps the TARDIS into the past. And that's the end of the first episode. We don't know exactly where they've gone. He just takes them somewhere. Turns out he's taken them to basically prehistoric times when they're dealing with very primitive man and some of the dangers that are faced there. And this first season really plays up some of the elements that the BBC wanted to put in here. Part of their goal to increase the broad appeal of the series was to make it an educational series. So the sci-fi type stories would be focused on the science and the education that way. And they're also planning to spend a lot of time jumping through Earth's history and covering history in that respect. So in this one, they go back to prehistoric times and they do talk about sort of the status of man and what it is there. The original concept was for the TARDIS's chameleon circuit to work. So it was supposed to blend into the background everywhere they go because of budget limitations they decided well at least for the first little bit the chameleon circuit gets stuck and it still looks like a police box even in the prehistoric era. Which does confuse the doctor for a bit. He stands there staring at it going I don't know why this isn't working what's going on. And the production team just basically never did get the money to make the TARDIS look like anything else, at least not until the Colin Baker era, when Colin Baker returned to Totter's Lane and was dealing with the Cybermen. Sylvester McCoy would also return to Totter's Lane, and when he's there, there are some hints that there was a goal. They weren't just hanging out there because Susan loved the 20th century so much, but the Doctor had a plan and the Doctor was on a mission, and that he still has some unfinished business there in 1963. But a lot of those were stories that were told later. The seeds that are planted here, it's just, yep, they're there because they really have no place else to go. Susan enjoys it. They come back to the past, and this is where we see Ian Chesterton start to assume the role of the action hero of this series, which is a role he kept for most of the first two seasons, right up until he left in story 16. We also see a some of the early concepts where they go to prehistoric times and deal with dangers that were native to prehistoric times. Later in this season, they're going to go back to the days of the Aztecs or to the French Revolution, which is even hinted at here. The history teacher, Barbara, loans Susan a book on the French Revolution, and Susan starts reading it and says, well, they got that wrong, they got that wrong. The first season ends with them going back to visit the French Revolution. But this was very educational, at least in its design, where they would go back and meet threats and difficulties that are native to those eras. That will go away. It's 
not very long at all before the series downplays the education side, and when they meet threats in these historical areas, they're meeting threats that don't belong in the historical eras, and that's largely why the Doctor gets involved. It is neat to watch today. It's also worth noting that the first episode of this is apparently the start of the BBC's practice of running first-run shows multiple times in a week, so it doesn't just allow them to fill the schedule with cheaper product. This episode first aired the day after John F. Kennedy was assassinated or later the same day, depending on which time zones you're in. As a result, a lot of people missed the broadcast. And the BBC did get some letters written in saying, hey, we missed it, can you air it again? I don't know how many reached them in time. They were already concerned that it lost viewership for their new mainstay series because people were more focused on the JFK assassination. So they ran it multiple times in that first week. And even the second week... They ran it again before running the second episode. And that's where the BBC started that practice, which allowed people to catch up and make sure they don't miss them. Granted, I haven't been to the United Kingdom since the year 2000, but when I was there, they were doing the same thing. A first-run show could air two or three times in the premiere week. But this does lay a lot of the groundwork for the series, and it does set the stage for some of the character development we're going to see. Because at this stage, the Doctor is not a hero. He's looking out for himself and his daughter, and that appears to be just about it. He's not particularly concerned about Ian and Barbara. You know, if he could leave them behind in the past and know he wasn't going to mess up the future because this Doctor was not willing to change even one line of history, he probably would. So it is well worth checking out, and it is very interesting to see where the series began, especially if you're coming into it from where it is today, because the series has changed over time, particularly in the representation of the Doctor. At any rate, that's about all we have to say about An Unearthly Child. Please join us again tomorrow when we discuss the Daleks. Thank you for listening.